0: Well, this morning we come to a very familiar passage of Scripture. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. And it's a bit intimidating when you come to a verse that everyone knows so well, uh, one that is often quoted, perhaps a verse that you committed to memory. Usually it's on a list of memory verses pretty early in the process. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When you hear that verse, what probably comes to mind is Bibliology. Bibliology. Uh, It's a verse about the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the Bible. Certainly, this verse teaches us about God's Word. But as you know, the writer of Hebrews is not primarily concerned right now uh, with a, a theological dissertation on the doctrine of the Word of God. See, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, hang with me on this, comes right after verse 11 and right before verse Thirteen. I know I had, to, I had to study it a long time to figure that out. Thinking, why did I come to church to hear that this morning? But why? Why is verse twelve here? Why is it sandwiched between verse eleven and verse twelve? See, the reason why I found this verse so intimidating, and and knowing that it was coming, is is because typically when we memorize or think about Hebrews four twelve, we think of it just by itself. This a little verse about the living and active sword of the Lord, which is the Word of God. We don't normally memorize verse 11 and verse 12, even though really it's, it's one grouped thought. It's all connected. So what is this significance with the reason of it being here? What is the author's flow of thought? Well, as they keep saying every week since chapter 3, verse 7, we're in a, in a big warning section in Hebrews warning section is meant to go out to God's people and and those who are actively trusting in Christ. It's an encouragement to continue trusting in Christ. For those who are not trusting in Christ, it's an encouragement to turn to him and be saved. See, the author's concern is that it's possible to be supernaturally connected to the true vine, which is Christ, and yet not ultimately be connected. Is that not astounding? I remember just being, my mind being blown the first time someone explained that in John chapter 15, there's branches who in some way are attached to Christ that actually get broken off and thrown into the fire. Doesn't mean, of course, that they're ever regenerated. Doesn't mean that they were saved, but it means that in some way they were very closely associated with that vine, yet they were unbelieving. And so this author is continually in, in so many different ways seeking to awaken and stir up faith in the hearts of God's people to trust and rely in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. Last week, we saw that believers get God's rest. Believers get God's rest. It's His promise. It's an eternal rest. Uh, It's a rest from labor. It's a rest from all of the difficulties of this life. It is a rest that God has designed from the beginning of creation. Uh, It's not our rest. It's rest, and then we're invited to join him in that rest. We just meditated on that a little bit two weeks ago, and I was ready to sign up, man. I'm ready to be in that rest. It's a glorious thing that we actually get to look forward to being in God's rest. Yet that section ended with verse 11 of chapter 4. That after exalting this glorious rest that God promises that he allows us to enter, the author says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You see, the same sort of disobedience, the same disobedience as whom? See, the disobedience that the author is thinking about here isn't just a vague disobedience. And sometimes, as a lazy parent, you go to discipline a child and you ask them, well, hey, do you know what you did? We well, yeah, I sinned. I disobeyed. Okay. I'm just, that's fine. But sometimes then you ask the question, well, tell me how you disobeyed. What do you hear a lot of times? I don't know. I just know I was in trouble. I know I, I, know I did something I wasn't supposed to. I can't really explain it. I can't really give you a very good answer right now. I know I'm in trouble. What did I do? Well, here he's, he's talking about a very specific disobedience. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so we may not fall by the same sort of disobedience. What was that disobedience? Well, that was the disobedience of Kadesh Barnea. That was the disobedience that we looked at extensively a few weeks ago when, when the children of Israel were right on the brink of going into Canaan. And before they went in, spies went to check out the land. And the spies looked at the land and they came back and they made a report And what was the report? Man, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's productive. The fruit is amazing. It's a a beautiful land. There's a lot going on. It's a great land. And the people there are really big. And we have no chance against them. And in all of Israel, it says there were only two men who stood up and said, actually, although that's true, God gave us a promise. All we got to do is trust the Lord, and if we trust the Lord, he's actually going to hand over the enemies. Now, it's easy for us to think, you had the promise of God. Why was it so hard to trust the Lord? Well, think about it. Out of the, the two-ish, three million-some odd number of, of Jews at that time from Goshen, how many trained soldiers do we have? We don't have any, right? Maybe if we're going to have like a brick war or right, a snowball fight, we got some guys that know how to make bricks. That's what they've been doing for generations in Egypt. Okay, well, we've got a bunch of weapons. We'll just get our weapons together. Sorry, Egyptians had taken away all the weapons. Nobody had any weapons. All right, well, at least we're organized. We have generals. We have strategy. We have a plan. We know how to go about a conquest. Absolutely not. So you can understand that if you were to just seize things up with the eyes of the flesh, (laughs) you're outnumbered. You don't have weapons. You don't have military background. No one is trained. And yet... They had the chance to trust the Lord, and instead, their hearts were hard, and they were disqualified from entering. They disbelieved the Lord. They said, Joshua and Caleb, you guys are are wrong, and rather, we are fearfully not going to go in. And so, Israel did not need to be strong. They didn't enter the land because they weren't righteous enough. They didn't enter the land because they weren't strong enough. They didn't enter the land because they didn't trust the word of the Lord. Their hearts were hardened in unbelief. And so the author of Hebrews right now is working through this argument. And as we've looked at, this is a a pretty scary section of scripture. Verse 1 says of chapter 4 Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, let us be scared. Verse 11 is saying that we, we must strive to enter God's rest so that we don't fall short by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 3, God is actually swearing to people that they're not going to enter his rest. That's his chosen people. He's saying, you guys are never going to get in. I swear it with an oath. There's a warning in verse 7 that if you hear the voice of God, that in that moment today, there's a sense of urgency, urgency repeated over and over. Today, 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 today. Do not harden your heart when you hear the voice of God. Because you don't have the ability to presume that tomorrow your heart will be soft. And so this is, this is a scary section of Scripture, right? There are some passages of Scripture that are not scary. I would put this in the category of one that is a little bit unsettling. In fact, Mike Abendroth says that when you get to chapter 12 of verse 4, it's the scariest verse in the whole Bible. comes in the middle of a very serious paragraph. Let me read it one more time with that in mind. Verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For, because, since, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, this is the, the basis for that urging in verse 11. You're to strive to enter that rest and not fall short of the disobedience because of this awesome word. The title of this morning's message is The Awesome, Inescapable Word of God. See, what you're to, to conclude at the end of this whole section is, is I don't have the ability within myself to even exercise faith in God, and the Lord is saying, it's okay, I'm giving you an all-powerful word that will do the work that you're unable to do on your own. It will actually awaken faith in your heart. And at the same time, if you choose to reject this word, you're going to be judged by this very word, and you cannot escape it. And I'm sorry for turning here like you're saved and you're not. That wasn't my intention. I'm thinking of the, the goats and the sheep judgment. That was not my intention." But the idea is that this this word is so powerful and awesome, it's an inescapable reality, and it will either bring you to God in repentance and faith, or it will be your judge. This word is awesome, and it is inescapable. When I say awesome, it is a mixture of fear and a mixture of wonder. And I can just warn you that today's passage is going to simply grip your heart at the awesomeness of God's word. I mean... For crying out loud, I I pastor a Bible church. I teach the Word. I counsel using the Word. I read it. I study it. I, I preach it. I memorize it. And yet, as I'm contemplating this passage this week, I'm realizing there are a thousand and one ways that I disbelieve the Word of God. And all I have to do is come back to it. And God begins to powerfully work within me. This morning, we will see the awesome, and inescapable Word of God, first in verse 12, that this Word is effective. And second, this Word is exposing. My friends, these qualities of the Word of God make it unlike any other word on earth. Really unlike any other thing on earth. It is powerful, it is piercing, it is precise. And so the author begins for verse 12. Here's the reason, here's the reason that that you must strive, here's the reason that you must trust Christ and rely upon him, because the word of God is living and active. Now in the original, this sentence begins with the word living, it's actually kind of confusing, it says living for the word is, it's, it's kind of a confusing structure, but the first word being living is highlighting the most important thing the author wants to draw attention to. My friends, when you think of the Word of God, it's a super old book. I mean, we're talking about antiquated literature here. Very old writing. Ancient. Yet this very Word, right now, is alive. This Word is alive. It transcends time. It brings clarity into any moment and any need with the sheer power of God. Not only is it alive, but it never dies. It lives forever and ever. First Peter one twenty five: the word of the Lord remains forever. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the eternal word will never pass away. It's here and it's stay can't say that about anything else. All these other things around us, everything that you see and experience to the exception of your soul is going to at some point rot and decay. The Lord is going to judge the earth. He's going to burn it all up. It's going to be rolled up like a garment. And when all that's said and done and there's nothing left but a pile of ash, his word will still endure. Not only that, not only is his word alive right now, but it imparts life. It is life-giving. Psalm 119 verse 50, your promise. Lord gives me life James 1 of his own will of God's own will he brought us forth by the word of truth John 6 63 Jesus said it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all and the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life my friends if, if you have been saved then you already know the power of this word You know what happened. At some point, God convinced you of your sin and the worthiness of Christ, and you were born again to a living hope. Peter says, by the living word. It's like I don't even need to explain it anymore. It's in your own testimony. You already know what it's like. You've already tasted of this before. What Paul said when he wrote to the Thessalonians, and he he said in First Thessalonians two thirteen, we thank God because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, the word of God what, which as which is at work in you who believe. My friends, the word of God is active; it is living. And it is effective. That is this idea here of it it being not only living but active. It's, it's uh, dynamite, um, uh, energos. It has this, uh, this energy that is dynamic. It's a working power that is effective. Think with me for a moment what the word does that you know already so well. It's the word alone that sanctifies. It's the word that regenerates. It's the word that restrains. When the word goes forth, it is the same power that God used when he created the heavens and the earth. And it carries with it then this divine power that's unlike any word that you and I say. Our words have some power. We, we think about uh, famous speeches uh, when Churchill came and, and he spoke at the finest hour and he rallied the troops around this uh, important moment in history. It was affected to some degree and yet it died off. This is a word that goes forth and it is effectual for spiritual change and spiritual needs. The Bible describes the word of God as a seed over and over. We, we actually just sang about that. Lord, cause your word to bear fruit. Just think about what a seed does. A seed is a seed of life. You, You plant it in and then it begins to grow and fruit comes from that. And over and over in the New Testament, the Word of God is described as a seed that is planted. All Scripture is breathed out by God. No other book can say that. No other book can compare. Phil Johnson says of this Word, this Word rebukes us. It chastens us. It comforts us it guides us and it gives light to our path. It preaches to us. It restrains our foot from evil. It frowns on us when we sin. It warms our hearts with assurance when we have doubts. It encourages us with its promises when we're weary or frightened. This word stimulates our faith. It builds us up. It ministers to every spiritual need we have. It is alive and it is dynamic. And the vitality of Scripture is eternal and abiding. This word never dies. When God sends forth His word, it's powerful because of the source from which it comes. See, it's the fact that it is not merely the Word, but the very Word of God, His Word that belongs to Him, that goes forth, that gives it that intrinsic power. We say it all the time, the Word of God. Do you realize what you just said? Something that God has spoken and revealed? We know this from the prophet Isaiah in his familiar words where he said in chapter 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout. In other words, he's talking about just as the the water comes down in the hydrological cycle and nothing is wasted because it produces in the ground a, a fruit and a crop. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but what? It shall accomplish. It shall work. It shall do. That which I purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, the Word of God always succeeds in accomplishing God's intended goal. It cannot be stopped, cannot be thwarted by any scheme of man or any power of hell. And when you find that your soul lacks and you don't even know how to relate rightly to God, you go back to the Word and guess what? He knows what to do and He speaks to you from His Word that works effectually. I was thinking about this and the guy that came to mind in the Old Testament about the effectual work of the word was Josiah. It was in his eighteenth year of his reign. Somebody says, "Hey, uh, by the way, we're digging around. We we found the book of the law." So they said, "Okay, why don't uh, we go ahead and we'll read it?" And so he heard the word of the law read. He heard Deuteronomy beginning in chapter one read. That's it. It was read. It wasn't even a sermon. There wasn't any preaching. There wasn't any word of exhortation. The word was simply read. 2 Kings records what happened. Verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 11. Listen as I read. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. So he heard the law of God and he was immediately undone. He immediately realized we have been living far from what God had established as the boundaries of the relationship that we're supposed to have with him, and what revealed it was not the wise counselors around us. It wasn't uh, our wisdom of the age. Rather, all it was was simply the reading of the law, and hearing that word did that work in his heart. He responded by believing. In fact, the Lord is gracious to Josiah, and he says it's because his heart was penitent that he humbled himself before the Lord. When he heard how the Lord had spoken against this place and against his inhabitants. In other words, the Lord said, I'm going to be gracious to you, Josiah. I'm going to relent in my anger because when you heard the word, what did you do? You were soft to it. You heard it and you submitted to it. You believed it. He said, you tore your clothes, you wept before me. And so I now hear you. You hear me? Now I'll listen to you is what the Lord says. Josiah got busy, he removed all the shrines, and Israel would have been a bloody mess. He took all of the the false priests, and he put them on their own sacrifices and killed them. How's that for serious judgment? That's pretty violent. Not only that, but he reinstituted the Passover celebration, something that had been forgotten. It was to be the annual reminder of God's gracious salvation and deliverance. He said, guys, we're we're getting back to the proper worship calendar that we're supposed to have. Got rid of all the mediums and the necromancers, those who would try to conjure up the dead and speak to the spirits and said, You guys are all out of here. You don't have jobs anymore. We're kicking you out. In fact, the Bible says that there was no king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. See, Josiah turned to Yahweh, he did a 180, and he was regarded by the Lord. What changed Josiah's heart? Well, The court secretary, his name was Shaphan, is what the scripture says. Shaphan was the guy who read the book. Hokiah the priest found the scroll and said, hey, we need somebody to read. Courtchester, you're up, Shaphan, you're going to read the book. He reads the book, Josiah hears it, and immediately God does a work where he's cut to the quick, and his heart is now responding in faith to the message that he has just heard. All it took was the reading of Deuteronomy. That's the power of the truth. Now you understand what David was talking about in Psalm 19 when he was saying, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And you understand that each one of those is saying, here's a descriptor of what the Word of God is. And Now here it is, at work, actively working. And so you might be tempted to hear all of that and think, what a great message. What could possibly be discouraging about the Word of God working? When the Word of God works, it's not just to soften. It's not the only thing that God does with His Word. Israel had a front row seat to this. And sometimes when God's word goes forth, it's to harden the hearts of the hearers. See, when God gave the message to Moses, he said, you're going to go to Pharaoh. And whose words are you going to speak? My words that I'm going to give you. And when you go to Pharaoh, I'm going to harden his heart. Exodus 7.13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to Moses and Aaron as the Lord had said. See, the, the sovereign God who sends forth his word and says, my word will always accomplish, it will always work, it will always do what I intend for it to do, doesn't always have a saving purpose when his word goes forth. It's to soften some and it is to harden others about an example of this in the New Testament. It was when Stephen was preaching in Acts chapter 7. And you want know, on a glorious sermon that, that awakens and stirs faith in the heart, you hear a man anointed by the, the power of the Holy Spirit preaching the Old Testament and saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that you were waiting for. That's a glorious message. It's a wonderful message. And he preached it with all the power and all the conviction that you could possibly imagine. able to look up at heaven at that moment and see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. So he he is in the flow at that moment as he is speaking forth the very word of God. In Acts 7, Luke records that when they heard these things, they were softened. It says they were enraged. They were enraged at this word. They began to gnash their teeth. And they were so upset about it that two verses later they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Same word going forth. Certainly ministering to Stephen's heart as he's preaching. As he's able to say, Father, forgive them. Your word's ministering to me right now to the point where I'm able to forgive the people who are are stoning me to death. These people are hearing it. And in utter shock, they're actually physically plugging their ears so they don't have to hear the truth. This is why Spurgeon said so famously, the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. The same gospel, he would go on to say, which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. Look, if you want an object, listen, of this, just come over to my house. I'm happy to show you. You put a crayon in the cup holder in the van, and what happens? It melts. Right there, in the van, everywhere there's a crayon, it melts. And then what happens when you leave Play-Doh outside? Well, it, it shrivels and dries up, and it hardens. The sun is no different. It's the same heat going forth. It's the object that it's falling upon that is indicating whether or not it melts or whether or not it hardens. You understand, it's the same gospel that goes forth. It is the same word that goes forth. It accomplishes God's purpose, hardening some and softening others. And so right now in Hebrews, you've got people that are sitting there that have heard the word of God. They've sat under the preaching of the word. They've heard the gospel. They've heard that Jesus is better. And as they're tempted to drift away, they're being warned not to do that, not to harden in unbelief. And when they begin to despair, what do I do with the unbelief in my heart? The author says, listen, the word of God is actually powerful and active. You say, well, this is confusing. It sounds like circular reasoning. Yep, it is. You need to respond rightly to the word. And the only way that you can respond rightly to the word is for the word to do its work in you. All right, there you have it. That's what the Bible teaches. The word of God actually performs its work in you who believe. How do you battle unbelief then? How do you destroy your propensity to doubt God? Try more to believe? That doesn't work. Like one of my buddies in seminary used to say, early in his Christian life, man, I'd struggle with faith, so what would I do? I'd I'd get in the car, crank up the Christian music as loud as I could go. I would sing at the top of my lungs until I was kind of in a frenzy, and and I'd get some, some kind of tears going, or I'd feel strengthened, and then that was how I would crank up faith. Friends, the only way that your faith can be cranked up is when the Word of God does its work in you. It's by the power of the Word. In fact, that's the only way that you could ever know God is through the power of the Word. The Apostle Peter would say in 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Born again by the Spirit? Yes. Born again by the Word? Yes. See, this Word is awesome because it is living and it is active. It is effectual. And not only that, but it's a very sharp tool. It's a very sharp tool that pierces and cuts and separates, it distinguishes the inner workings within you. Back to the, the scary part of this verse it says here that the Word of God is sharper than any two edged sword. When you read the Word of God that's living here in verse 12, uh, there's a minority group of commentators that would take this as Jesus Christ himself, right? Because he is the Word of God incarnate. John 1 teaches that. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. He's talking about the Word. He's talking about the, the written Word, the spoken Word of God. And part of that we know is, is because when he brings up this idea of a two-edged sword, Jesus is never called a sword, but three times in Revelation it's said that he has a two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. It's his words. Close relationship between Jesus and his words, but they're they're not exactly the same. And so, what I want you to stop and think about for just a minute is picture this sword of the Lord. What comes to mind? I can tell you what would come to my mind Excalibur. Something significant here. A weighty sword, a big sword. I had a business contact once that gave me a letter opener with Hebrews 4.12 imprinted on it, and it was a little sword. So you'd open up your letters and you had a little two-edged sword. You could use one side, you could use the other side. But it looked like a big Excalibur. It was just shrunk down. And that's how we normally think about this. A mini Excalibur. We like big swords. One of the biggest swords in the world is the Claymore. It's a Scottish sword, typically six or seven feet long. That's a big sword. A fifth of the sword is, is taken up in the handle, and it was uh, used in the very front lines of battle so that you could get at a pikeman before he got to you. And the design there was not finesse, it was you could, you know, hit him in the hand and break his wrist or something like that early on in the battle to kind of defend through that front line. It's called the claymore. I don't mean to disappoint anyone, especially the little boys in the room that like the idea of big swords. But this here is not a big sword, it's a dagger. This was a dagger. A dagger is a, a little baby sword. It's like a, a glorified knife. It has a blade on both sides. This was the, the Roman dagger that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. If you remember, this was um, what Ehud used to King Eglon. One of my favorite all-time stories in the Bible as a kid, uh, dead to rights was when Ehud came in as the left-hander, he had a dagger hidden on his thigh. He went into the king, said, I have a really important secret for you. So the king said, all right, get everybody out, he's got a secret for me. They closed the doors, he went up to embrace him, and then when he was not expecting it with the left hand, what, stuck the dagger in his belly, which was large. So large, in fact, that it swallowed up the dagger and the hilt. And the nun came out, and he died. He fell over and died. So think about it. That's a small weapon, right? If it could go into the stomach, and then the stomach could swallow up the hilt. It's a small weapon here that we're talking about. This small weapon, then, is is said to be sharper than any two-edged sword. Any two-edged sword. You begin to think about the sharpest blades. Typically, we think of a razor blade. That's pretty sharp. Or a surgeon's scalpel. Now we're getting a little bit closer. And yet, if you were to to, to cut with a razor blade or a surgeon's scalpel and then look at it under a microscope, what you'd find is what looks like a very clean cut is actually quite jagged. The tissue would look kind of ripped, actually, under a microscope. In fact, the sharpest blade in the world is not made of stainless steel, but it's made of obsidian, the lava rock, glass. And the reason is because obsidian can get down to a single molecule when it's being sharpened. It's said to be perhaps even 100 times sharper than the sharpest steel scalpel. Now, the reason why it's not commonly used in surgery is because it breaks easy. And so as they're cutting in, they bump into a bone, they're going to leave glass inside your body. That's, there is actually one doctor in Michigan if you want to go there who swears by obsidian blades and uses them, but generally speaking, you're not going to find them in most surgical centers. But the reason why that that doctor uses that blade as he speaks of it is, is when he's doing cosmetic surgery. The reason why I have these special obsidian blades reserved for cosmetic surgery is because when I do the cut, it's the most minimal possible scarring because the blade is... 500 times sharper than a steel scalpel. My friends, when you begin to think about what the Word of God does, you're beginning to get a sense for this idea here. See, this is a a small blade. It does close work. It's not for lopping off an arm with some kind of big heavy swing, hoping to aim and hit somewhere. Rather, this is an instrument of fine precision. It does close range work. Like obsidian that could separate cells without breaking them apart, something that steel could never do. This is a fine blade. When you think of it this way, there's no spiritual need that you have that I- this instrument does not possess the intrinsic ability to address. There's no instrument that, that could possibly penetrate a sin hardened heart except for the piercing of this blade. You ever try to use a dull paring knife? Just the other day, man, I'm trying to cut a, a tomato of all things, and the blade was so dull. You know, you want to get the nice slice, and I'm just, man, I, I can tell I'm going to bruise this thing as I go in because the blade isn't sharp enough. Think of all of the, the ways that you try to deal with making life work apart from Scripture. Every solution that you search for outside of Scripture for your spiritual needs. Every time that you seek out worldly wisdom to address an issue. Every time that you think that maybe just if you ponder your own heart long enough, that will be of some kind of assistance. You understand, you have, you're, you're coming with the, the plastic knife from the picnic set. It's not going to have any effectiveness. Rather, you come to the Word of God, and you trust God to do the work. He's given you the resource that you need. Not a dull knife, but a, a very sharp one, and so this word is precise. It performs surgery, like a scalpel. It's not a weapon that we use for attack. You'd hear this instrument, this fine instrument of precision, is being pointed toward you. This is the scary part. Look, it's it's piercing to the division of soul and spirit. He's not talking about dividing up the inner you, that there's soul and spirit and mind and all those things. There's a a part of you that you can see, that's your body, and a part of you that you can't see, the immaterial you. That's the soul. That's all that he's talking about here. But the point is that that it's separating things that are essentially inseparable. It goes down deep into the deep parts of you and and accesses things that no other resource could possibly access. Yea, it discerns even the thoughts. And intentions of the heart. The inner workings. The reasonings. And it begins to bring to light things that you and I can't discern or see. See, if we're stuck to our own self-assessment, then we're stuck in Jeremiah 17, 9. All you've got is a heart that's deceitful, it's desperately wicked, and you can't even understand it. And that's what you're left with. No, the Word of God comes in with this this piercing ray that begins to separate things that would otherwise be inseparable all the way down to the membranes and the cells, the the human body there being an analogy between the joints and the marrow. And so what you understand then is that this Word is, is so penetrating that there is nothing too deep. There's nothing too dark. There's nothing so deeply hidden that it could not be exposed Even in the motives of the heart. Left to ourselves, we would be hopeless. And yet, this word comes and it reveals the true heart's condition. My friends, when you're trying to understand life, you don't find the answers by looking within you, you find the answers by looking without you. The answer is outside of you, it's in God's word that is going to bring that clarity. Friends, so you think of all of the times that we distrust God's powerful word to work. I said, I, I could think of a thousand different ways. I'm not exaggerating. Think of all the ways that we try to find to uh, solve and address the issues of this life. Modern psychology, helicopter parenting, philosophical arguments, ways to make the gospel more palatable. When you understand that, that God's truth unvarnished is all that we need for every spiritual issue, both for ourselves and for others, God's Word works powerfully and it works marvelously. You're reading about Luther and the protestant reformation he wrote of the power of the word of god and we think of the reformation we think of the doctrines of grace that's a good thing we think of the five solas of the reformation we love all of those the formal cause of the reformation was sola scriptura and that was that was why the reformation happened was simply that the the scripture was recovered and as soon as the scripture was recovered that was the catalyst from which all of the other solas flowed out of what did luther say man i want to think like this he said, quote, I will preach the word, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force. In other words, I'm, I'm really just going to speak it, and that's it. I'm not, I'm not going to try and pressure anyone. Why, for faith, he writes, must come freely without compulsion. Take myself, for example, he says. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. What did he do instead? He says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip Melanchthon and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. See, the word of God is effective. It does the work that God wants it to do. And so in every area of life, as you face the struggle of dealing with your own sin, your own unbelief, ministering to the lives of others, this is a call for us to come back and trust the living and abiding Word of God to do its work. Well, the Word of God is effective. And secondly, we'll see here in a much briefer point that the Word is exposing. The Word is exposing. Verse 13 reads, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the word of God now is, is said to have this property by which it tests and reveals. It shows things that otherwise could not be seen and now displays them. So it's like after 9-11, you go to the airport, and I remember flying not long after 9-11, and could not get through my mind the things that you were not supposed to put in the bag before you go. And so I had the regular opportunity and privilege of having my bag opened up for everyone to see, and, and all of the things that I wasn't supposed to take pulled out. And they were exposed. Why? Because someone is sitting there with a little monitor, and your bag goes through the x-ray, and they get to see exactly all the things that you packed and didn't pack. There's, there's insight that happens. And so here, literally, in the original, it, it reads, there is no creature that is not unexposed. It means everybody goes through the divine x-ray machine. Job 34, 21, the Lord's eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. Every step you take, the Lord sees. Every thought you think, every desire and craving, every action, every word, you can run from the Lord, but you can't hide. If you were to think about it, the the worst person it would seem to actually see you for who you really are is the Lord, and He's the only one who can. And so the text says that the the word comes forth. It's doing that, that piercing work. Now there's no one hidden from the gaze of God, but instead all are naked. All are naked. It means there's no covering for who you actually are. All of your vile inclinations, every pursuit that has tickled your fancy, all of your violations of God's law are uncovered in his sight. What you want to keep hidden inside, internalized, that that you think won't ever see the light of day, is actually seen brightly before Him for what it really is. I mean, the Scripture resounds on this topic. It's not mentioned merely once or twice or three times or four times. Proverbs fifteen three: The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Psalm 33, 13, the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them and observes all of their deeds. Psalm 44:21. 21, he knows the secrets of the heart. Psalm 90, verse eight actually goes so far as to say, Lord, you've set our iniquities before you. It means they're right in front of his face. That was the Hebrew. To be before the Lord meant that you're right in front of his face, the psalmist said, you've said, all of our iniquities, all of our violations are right in front of your face. And then he goes on and says, our secret sins in the light of your presence. It means the things that you think no one sees and no one knows that you would love to remain a secret are not actually a secret to God. 1 Samuel 16, 7, you know well when the Lord said, don't look upon man's outward appearance. I look on the heart, we just kind of think, oh yeah, we're talking about who to choose for king. No, he's saying, I'm assessing the heart. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 28, it says that the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. Psalm 7, 9 says it is the Lord who tests the minds and the hearts. And so suddenly we read that and we think, you know, I used to like Psalm 139. That used to be a really comforting passage to me about the Lord knowing me and being acquainted with all of my ways. And then I read it in light of Hebrews 4.12. And you hear David say, oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. And you think, hmm, searched. searched sounds a little bit different now. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar you search out my path and my line down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Now we say, got it. That's why he's saying in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Even if I take the wings of the morning, he writes, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, at least I'm in the dark right now. And the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. My friends, God sees you and He knows you far better than you know yourself, every intimate detail. And the next word in the original is not the experience, it's not just experientially what we feel when. We encounter the word in that way. It's the actual result. The result here, and the ESV says that we're naked and exposed, but, but a better word than exposed would actually be helpless. Helpless. Tracheolidzami. Do you hear it? Tracheolidzami. The throat. See, what this word was used for was, was in a wrestling move when you'd have someone by the throat. And I couldn't help but remember I used to be a wrestler. You probably all guessed that. But um, anyway, I was a a wrestler, and uh, I wrestled in the 84-pound weight class in seventh grade. Normally, you have to cut weight to get down to a weight in wrestling. I just had to fight to stay up in the 84-pound weight class. Um, But the thing about when you wrestle at 84 pounds is there's not a lot of other guys at 84 pounds. So... About at least half my matches, I'd just walk out, you know, take off my sweatpants. I kind of had a baggy singlet that was supposed to be tight, but just kind of hung on my body. And they'd raise up my hand, and we'd get six points. That's the same as if you pinned someone. So uh, I might have contributed the most points that year on the wrestling team, not because I was that good, but because nobody else had an 84-pounder. And so um, I'd come in, I'd raise my hand. And then uh, the summer before freshman year, um, I'd gotten together with a buddy, uh, up in Salem, actually, we were going down a hill on push scooters, and I got speed wobbles, and that's the last thing I remember. So I wasn't wasn't wearing a helmet. I woke up in the shoulder of the road, and I'd just road rash, kind of torn apart, you know, elbows and knees and shoulders and all those things. And it was a week before wrestling camp at o, at OSU, and uh, Oregon State has a great wrestling program. Uh, they'd bring in incoming freshmen and and uh, all high schoolers. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to wrestling camp. So I'm all taped up and. And I show up, and, and what I found there was that, unlike my experience in my little middle school, there were guys there that actually knew what they were doing uh, when it came to wrestling. And so I went out in the very first match, and shortly therein, I was on my shoulder that I just ripped up, and my, my chin was deeply in my collarbone, and I couldn't really breathe, and I couldn't really see, and I couldn't get out, and I just remember whimpering and not even knowing what had happened? It was like instantaneous that I was in that grip. I was helpless. I mean, literally until until the uh, official blew the whistle, which couldn't come fast enough. I was helpless. I mean, try as I might, wiggle, kick, whimpering—it wasn't working. I was I was pinned in that position, and that's that's a little bit of the idea here. Is that in in wrestling it would be a, a throat hold, the the trachea there down on the mat where you. Are wiggling and you can't get out the other way that it would be used was when an animal's neck would be laid out before it was executed and the neck would be exposed there's that trachea lids my word and, and now it's prepared for the knife and so in the animals in that position there's there's no getting out it's it's dead to rights it's it's life is over and so what the writer is saying is that when the Word of God comes and it scrutinizes the human heart, we are left helpless. You can't get out. You're in some mood that you don't understand. You're, you're unable to wiggle free. You're like an animal whose neck is laid out ready for the blade. And so what we're used to is, is that we can run and hide from things. You might be able to run and hide from your spouse You can run and hide from your accountability partner. You can run and hide from your pastor. You can dupe your boss. You can trick your parents and fool them for a season. But my friends, in the end, you will get away with nothing because the Word of God will expose you. And so you come to this, and it is alarming. I mean, I was just thinking about this. I I only have a, a faint knowledge of how much sin I've committed in my life, and yet it is an insurmountable pile. I was thinking about it, I can't even go a day without adding to the pile. I can't go one day without shoveling out more sin and throwing it on the pile. And the Lord knows all of it. And so the question is, what do you do with this exposure? I was just reading this past week of a Christian celebrity. We can use that term. I think we know what it means. Um, He was speaking negatively about the fact that as he was growing up, his parents used to warn him that God sees the things he does in secret. He is writing about how that, was caused, uh, that caused him to be a, a hypocrite. So he never wanted to bring anything to light because his parents were always threatening him that the Lord could see what was done in secret. As if that were somehow an abuse of the truth. It was distasteful to him. He felt like it was a, a bad threat, something inappropriate for a parent to say. And so he began to blame others. My friends, fallen man does not like to face who he really is. It's damaging to our self image to think of ourselves in this way. And yet, here was the fatal flaw that that man had is that when the word comes, it is absolutely inescapable, and that searching gaze comes and it reveals who you really are on the inside, and it leaves you in that vulnerable position of being utterly helpless so that you might turn to Christ and find mercy in him. You understand that's the point where he's going? The helplessness is so that you see that Jesus is my only hope. He is my only Savior. He is my only option. See, For this man to think that the searching gaze of God meant now I need to pretend that I'm something I'm not, that hypocrisy was a fatal flaw. That is folly, my friends. That is spiritual suicide when the word exposes to begin to say, okay, what I will do now is I will begin to silence that voice and pretend to be righteous. See, the author wants you to respond by turning to Jesus and trusting him because you understand what's coming. See, for the believer who's warned by the Scripture here, what you understand is there's a test coming And right there in the passage, it says that that we must give an account. There is one to whom we must give an account, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so what he's saying is, I want you to be exposed by the word now, see yourself as helpless now, so that you trust in Christ, so that on that day you stand in the judgment. What he's saying is that word is inescapable. So if you try to deny your helplessness now, you're going to get to that day, and then you're going to be exposed by the word and then you're going to be seen as helpless. And at that moment, it's going to be too late. You understand the, the mercy in this reminder of the scrutinizing word of God that's, that's coming on that day to hear now and to see ourselves rightly now that we might find Jesus as our perfect high priest? My friends, you either embrace this exposure and this helplessness now by trusting Jesus Or you will face it later on your own. This is why the author says today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts. In fact, it's going to be the very next thing that the author picks up in his argument. Verse 14, since then. Since then, because we're going to give an account. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. My friends, this same word that destroys every vestige of hope in your own righteousness also grants you divine power to be regenerated, to be born again to a living hope. And so everyone in the room who can attest to that power, you belong to Christ. Because you've actually been born again by this living and powerful word. What a comfort this is. And then my friends, let this passage encourage you in your daily life. I found so many ways to take this very truth and apply it to the thousand and one ways that I distrust the Lord's powerful word, to begin to just let him speak. Let him speak to me, let him speak through me, that the confidence would be squarely in his ever-changing, never-changing word. Will you pray with me? Lord, in heaven, you say that you look down from the heavens above and you see those who tremble at your word. Isaiah the prophet's writing and he's, he's saying that the earth is merely a footstool to you, uh, which is kind of a joke. It's an ottoman uh, because your throne is in the heavens. That's how insignificant and how puny the earth is. Yet, Lord, then you say that you dwell to the, with those who tremble at your word. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have uh, that disposition uh, to see your word as all that it is, Uh, Lord, we don't need to add to it. We don't even uh, really work to change our perspective. We simply come to it and we encounter it and we experience that energy. We experience that change. Thank you so much for your awesome word. Thank you that we could hear it, this side of judgment. And thank you for our merciful high priest who, Lord, passed the test on our behalf uh, that now has made us right with you. Uh, We love you and we... We want to sing to you now with full hearts for what you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, oh praise him, alleluia.